Xenoblade Chronicles 3 just came out. For everyone listening that's been waiting on their pre-orders, congratulations. Congratulations, everybody. I hope you're enjoying Xenoblade Chronicles 3. I am not going to be playing that game anytime soon for the same reason i've still not played the witcher 3 i know blasphemy i've just committed gamer blasphemy right but the reason i haven't played the witcher 3 is there's a little game called the witcher 2 in my game catalog and until that game is finished i will not touch the witcher 3 i'm glad we got that out of the way Hello and welcome to Here with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two thirty-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular niche RPGs. It's like a book club with violent robots that have names like Zebra, Onion, and Moist. Moist robots, Tyler. Moist. Hey, so I looked up Zebrae, or Zebrae, I don't know how you say it, but it's in the chapter, there's a section called Zebrae, and I found out... According to the internet, that's how you're supposed to say a singular zebra, and zebra is plural. Get out of here. Yeah, I don't know if I have to get out of here. That was 10 minutes on the internet, but so feel free to correct us in our Discord. Come visit us on Discord and correct us and tell us we're dumb. Zebra? Okay, zebras don't exist in this game. There are large, like, sickle-headed zebra-like things, but they have other names. Like, Ek. X was it? Yeah, X. Yeah, this is a crossover between a section of the chapter being named and me Googling it. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Anyways, uh, this is season one. We're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. My name is Tyler. And I think I'm Nate. Yeah. Yeah, I like Nate. We're pretty sure that's Nate. You're invited to join us as we do this blind playthrough of Xenoblade Chronicles. We just finished up chapter 13. And we're going to talk about it. The Makanis Field. Or as I titled Chapter 13, Fat Daddy Assassins. We can name it that. I like that. We don't actually assassinate anyone, though. And there's only one Fat Daddy at the very beginning. So this naming of the chapter falls prey to me naming it immediately as the chapter started. So maybe we'll give it a new title at the end of this episode. That sounds pretty good to me. Uh, Nate, how's it been, man? Good. Um, We're going to be, again, releasing an episode a bit late. I'm discovering as my wife is home from her employments, those are shorter deployments for the ship that she serves on in the U.S. Navy, I would think that I would have more free time when she's home because responsibilities can be split, but... You know, with wanting to go out and do fun things and get things done that you've been previously been putting off, having to have relations three times a day, it all just becomes a lot and episodes need to get delayed. So we apologize for that, that there's another late episode, but she is gone now and I can just play video games all day again and I can record and I am the ultimate gaming bachelor for at least another 10 days. Oh my goodness. Uh, yes. And in my case, uh, daddy life is going pretty well. I'm back to work now. Basically, she's an insatiable milk gremlin and uh, we'll be feeding her constantly. And sometimes she sleeps, sometimes she doesn't. And we're just kind of rolling through the punches right now. I have family coming over on Friday from Texas and Arizona. Come to see the baby. They haven't seen him yet. And so we're going to be doing some fun family stuff. We're going to Together Farms on Friday night. A farm 
the table restaurant that's outside and there's usually music playing typically bluegrass and there's pigs and cows you can pet and a little farm store you can buy fun things from it's a tasty fun rural experience not too far out of town it's a good time the chapter begins with a sweeping shot of the Alkamoth Citadel, Dixon, Atheron, the elder pond of Machna Forest, and his entourage and a squad of Hom soldiers are all walking very purposely towards the throne room. Kalian is there, he says hello, introduces himself. Atheron is in a mood. He accuses the Hyantia of being selfish and neglecting to participate in the Battle of Sword Valley one year ago. This kind of smacks like the um, the battle between, was it the humans and the elves and Lord of the Rings where the High Elves, Hyantia High Elves, um, declined to participate in a very consequential battle in history and it has embittered the two races since then and he's absolutely correct when he calls them out for their nonchalant passive ways while all of the other races on bionis are led to ruin he's not wrong by any means um and it's funny that the people who were the most passive and uninvolved are the ones like begging after just one incident, one little dust up and s scrape on their giant sky tower. They're like, oh my God, we gotta <laughs> do something. This is a tragedy. Um, and like the Homs, Nopon, whatever the hell Dixon is, that race, um, they're all called there to uh, participate because they had one little scrap of conflict in the last 10,000 years. Uh, Kalyan says the Hyantia have a change of heart. He's had a change of heart, and he's inspired by Shulk and the party. But Atheron checks that and says, the Monado is equal to or greater in responsibility for Shulk's success. And so it isn't Shulk's bravery you're thankful for, it's, it's the Monado's. And I wholeheartedly kind of agree with this because being in possession of a godly sword that does everything it is the deus ex screwdriver as you described. That's a buff that empowers your character. If I had a sword imbued with the power of God and reality, I would probably um, radiate encouragement to people that I meet. Atheron, he goes like, um, he goes from this process of taking zero shit in any of the explanations to completely accepting the explanation from Kalyan. And it's not a particularly good explanation, or it doesn't instill a lot of faith in the High Antia people. Now, you remember throughout the episodes, I've been critical of like High Antia society as just these lethargic, passive <laughs> nothings of people. And I don't know if that's genetic or part of their culture or what it is, but they're just not impassioned the way Homs are. And uh, so Kalyan, he says that they always believed that they could repel the Mechon if they wanted to. And it just turns out that after seeing this latest dust up, they were wrong. Now, if you think about that sentence, that's like what the kids these days uh, call a self-report. The kids that play Among Us, I don't play Among Us, but I've grown familiar with the term self-report in that uh, you kind of illuminate the fact that you are the dumbass in the group or you are the person that is the problem by your own words and what i mean by that is th the logic of saying we thought we you know we always believed we had the capacity to beat them but we just chose not to while all of you homs died just 
is it you know if he said before like we really wanted to help you but we knew that this is a hypothetical but like we knew that we'd be giving too many lives and we wouldn't have much to contribute or our own safety would be in jeopardy or anything like that that would be a somewhat valid excuse but he straight up says we always believed we could repel them and defeat them and we just chose not to now we realize we're wrong it's like that would be a moment where i'd be like all right well fuck you dude <laughs> i don't want you leading a coalition of races when you just outed the fact that you don't give a shit about any of them mm -hmm. and who's to say they have the military prowess uh, to be competitive in the fight. Anyways, Atheron and the Elder Pawn agree to join the invading force, and Dixon skulks out of the room. He says that something sounds like a pain in the neck, and I think he's implying the bureaucracy of conventional warfare. But Dixon gives Atheron command of the Homs forces, and then he says he must visit Shulk because he is part of the strategy of the attack. Kalyan has something he wants Dixon to tell Shulk, but you and I and the player are not privy to what that information is. Fade out. Yeah, and when it comes to what you just said about Dixon's weariness of the bureaucracy, this is the same kind of thing as, uh, remember when I said that I thought Melia ascended to the throne like three times and she's still not <laughs> on the throne, you know? Mm. I thought that this like coalition of forces that are waging war and our armies being formed and all of this stuff, I've thought like three different times that this is happening and there are battles being fought and territory being taken, but yet we're still in the throne room arguing over why we should fight together. Who the hell's leading this thing? Is it Dixon? Is it Othron? It was originally going to be Shulk and he refused like four times. And it's like, you know what? The high Entian bureaucracy sucks. They can't get anything done. They need to anoint their queen like four times. They need to start a coalition of forces multiple multiple times and can't agree on who the hell's leading the damn thing. I, you know, you got to give Shulk credit for refusing and just getting out there. He's about halfway up the fucking McConaughey's body at this point, and they're still back in the capital arguing. Yes. So something is going to come of this. I hazarded that there, there might be a showdown with the forces uh, this chapter. That's not the case. Maybe the next one. We rejoined the conversation precisely where we were cut off abruptly at the end of the last chapter. Precisely. Dunbin's follow-up question to why issue orders to kill your own son is the first words out of his mouth. So during the conversation, uh, there's a question, Lady Maynith, who was she? And the response is, the creator of Mechanis. Lady Maynith fought the Bionis for us. Who was Lady Maynith? The creator of Mechanis. You could say that she is the Mechonis itself. She's the, yeah, she's the soul of the Titan. This kind of matches your Cain Abel theory. Yes, exactly. That's, that you've mentioned a couple times. You're, you're leading me to that? that? That was the next point I have under that. The creator of Mechonis, um, our previously nameless counter agent to my postulated Abel character. Now, we don't have a name for that Abel character. I, I'm making this guy up based on xeno gears the game from 1998 but we now have an official name for that one of those two characters that i theorized was the original core creator slash pilot of this giant titanic creature 
and Lady Maynith is that. Now, we could get to the end of the game and find out I'm completely wrong on that theory, but that's what I'm throwing out there. She also plays this messiah role as well, because Mikol, in this conversation, also says that Bionis almost wiped us out. Is that Mechanis? Is that Machina? I don't know. But the next thing he says is, and so Lady Maynith fought the Bionis for us. Saved us from destruction. And we can go all the way back to when a soul transfer was initially performed on Viora, where the person doing the soul transfer is uh, saying something along the lines of Lady Maynith is their only hope for salvation or something like that. You know, I'm not going to look it up, but dude, who was that person? I think it was someone that we are going to get an allusion to here later in this chapter and we're gonna we're gonna meet in the near future now i don't know because i ended the chapter at the end of the chapter that's all i played but we do get another name mentioned here soon after this conversation right okay we'll hold on that then we also get egil's motivation out of mccall in this conversation here um egil said excuse me mccall says egil never forgave the bionis for what it did egil was a brilliant young man clever Strong and kind to the less able, but he never forgave the Bionis for what it did, and he swore to take revenge. And what does he mean? I assume almost wiping out everybody on Mechanis. And now he has become unstoppable. Even Lady Mayneth can't stop him. Uh, he's holed up in the Mechanis capital. We assume that's in the torso or head area. Shulk feels sorry for him, and Ryan checks him. He says, don't feel sorry for him. I feel sorry for him. Oi! What are you talking about? Did you forget what he did to us? I haven't forgotten or forgiven, but Egil's clearly suffered a lot in his life. You don't feel any sympathy at all? All I know is, this stinks. Who cares what he's been through? Good himbo. Smart himbo? This is part of Shulk's uh, heel turn <laughs> upon seeing... Uh... Mumkar, of all people, inside the robot body. Shulk is having a crisis of conscience in the fact that the people he's now fighting and killing look like him and look like people he cares about, and in some cases were people he cared about, and he's having this crisis of conscience. Now, even Eggle's own father is saying this dude needs to die so if there was anyone to have an emotional connection or perspective that maybe shulk should listen to i would say it'd probably be his dad the conversation ends with mikhol muttering the word zanza then he says in order to defeat eggle you must restore the manado's complete power so because he muttered zanza is quote restoring the manado's complete power mean Aligning with Zanza, is that codified as empowering Zanza? Are they one and the same? Just because you make a sword doesn't mean you are the sword, but maybe that's the case with here in the magical giant purple giant. Well, it's the question of, did we already do that? Or is there another empowerment coming? Is there a Monado 3? Monado 3. Sure, why not? Next, we check up on Fiora. Lenata says she's had several organs removed. Uh, she says her immune system is compatible with Mechon. Her immune system is compatible compatible with Mechon. Her, I, I'm not going to bake my noodle on that. We're going to keep going here. And then Fiora says, just make it so I can fight alongside Shulk. Well, we need to implant a new circulation system, but we don't have a piezoelectric unit. This is our MacGuffin for the beginning of the chapter here. We need to go find a piezoelectric unit. I looked up 
the etymology of this word piezo means pressure and electric. Well, I think we know what that means. So it is a, a piezoelectric something is going to have an electric current on it caused by pressure or compression. I cannot give you a real world example of a piezoelectric something, but that's what we're talking about here. They actually mention it a little bit in the dialogue here is that she was previously dependent on her faced mechon frame to pump blood through her body and oh. the i think uh you know a lot of uh things put significance in blood as a power the japanese people even believe that like blood type decides your temperament and who you are going to be at least they did in history they might not today in the development of modern scientists or development of modern sciences but in old games from the 90s you could find that when like looking up a character bio it would always list blood type because that was an important piece of information when displaying a character's temperament or alignment is by listing their blood type on their character sheet According to some brief research, this practice is called the blood type personality theory or Kitsue Kigata in Japan, in South Korea as well. So for fun, I thought I'd look up the traits for Nate and I's blood type. I, Tyler, have a blood type of A+. I don't know that Kitsue Kigata acknowledges pluses or minuses, but what I'm reading here is that the positive traits for people like me with the blood type of A is that they are earnest and orderly and a mild-mannered, conscientious type. And their negative traits are that they are stubborn, anxious, and easily stressed out. Nate's blood type, on the other hand, is O-, which means his positive traits are that he's passionate and creative, constructive in their communication, a born leader type, and that his negative traits are that he's selfish and uncooperative. <laughs> this science, or pseudoscience, also matches compatibility between folks, especially romantically. In the case between Nate and I, the relationship between an A type and an O type means that they cover each other's weaknesses, but their differences may stress them out. We're just scratching the surface here, so don't take my word on any of this. Let's get back to the fallen arm. So uh, just a little something there, but I think that they're kind of outing the fact that maybe it's Hom blood that provides that immunity to Mechon from the Monado pre Monado empowerment when the Monado was mm -hmm. shackled and could not harm Homs. Maybe that's in the blood then, or the blood at least gives enough of a reference to homology to shut down the Monado. I don't know, but the suggestion is that plugging a hom into the mechon body, they they filter blood out into the frame and then back in. And without that, they you know this piezoelectric unit maybe without the mechon she doesn't have the actual horsepower to circulate blood because like half the machine is missing in this case. So my document also kept erecting it to the pizza electric unit gnarly dude pizza electric unit i wish we just need to give her a big pizza and she'll be fine blood pumps for pizza the teenage mutant ninja turtles will validate that you can be getting your ass kicked you can be bleeding out maybe have an arm chopped off just eat a piece of pizza and you will be full health once again cowabunga, cowabunga. um questing around did you do much questing around here before you... I did. As you picked up the, the piezoelectric unit? I'm finding that, like, I talk to people three, four times, and on the third dialogue, it will activate, like, affinity for the area, 
or I'll find a really random circumstance where somebody has a quest that I'm like, I've been here four times and there was no quest. So they're giving me kind of like completionist anxiety in this area a little bit. So <laughs> I've been doubling back and trying to do what I can to keep up to date. And certainly any quest that has a stopwatch on it, I try and slam out uh, before moving on. But in some cases, they do necessitate you move on from the Fallen Arm Beach wildlife area in order to complete those quests. So I did as much as I possibly could here before moving on. Um, a couple things I wanted to note from this area is that there is a Machina man who wants to become a Homs. And no one can answer if that is even possible, but Regardless, I'm given a quest to collect various animal parts in hopes that he can become a Homs with animal parts. And apparently, flamingo legs are a key ingredient to this. So, I don't know, man. Um, apparently, flamingos are a, maybe an evolutionary ancestor to Homs, and they hope to uh, cultivate and accelerate and evolutionize a flamingo into a Homs. Who knows? That's scary. I don't think he wants to be a Homs. He wants to be a chimera of bionic stuff. I think alchemy is the trade you want to get into, buddy, because uh, this yeah. is he's a little out there, but there's a, oh, this makes me also think there's a past episode where I said I don't have any idea where they name things from, and then we get a chapter where literally every animal is just a variation of their actual name, and I sound like an idiot. So when you go back to that chapter or... You get here, and that's still stuck in your mind that I sounded really dumb when I said that. Just, yeah, I'm dumb. But now the flamingos are flammies. The wolves are wolves. It's all very on the nose. And I feel dumb for saying that in the past that I didn't know how they named things. The invincible Gonzalez looks obviously invincible and Gonzalez-y. I did a lot of quests around here uh, before I moved on to returning the piezoelectric unit. I gave a Machina woman water from the same spring I fed Fiora, and that was on behalf of this Machina woman's pet plant, and she gave me a key, a Mechanis key. Now that opens a, you find a console that's kind of hidden in the um, the middle area, like the ulnar passage, and a side of a wall opens up and it reveals a climbable wall and you climb up it and you go across and you go down again into this, into this empty area and there's nothing there. Not even a waypoint, must be for some quest I don't know anything about yet, thanks. Fast forward, I come back later in the chapter and I do a couple more quests and I do pick up a quest in which Fiora can only pick up the quest from the quest giver in the Machina village. And that quest giver directs us to this place that I had opened up previously. And in there, we pick up a red orb and we return it. It's the Oath Sword from Carlos, one of the Homs in the village there. And for my trouble, I get Jack Daggers, which are a nice weapon for Fiora. And we unlock Rashness, which is Fiora's fourth skill tree. This is the exact anxiety I am talking about because I did not see or experience any of that shit, Tyler. What the fuck? I'm gonna keep going. I found a secret area atop the distant fingertip. Uh, you can climb this catwalk all the way up the, it looks like the index finger, I think, of the 
of the fallen hand here. Digit two. Yeah, distant fingertip, digit two. There's a level 95 pterodactyl here, uh, stay away. Spectacular views from up here. I can see the village in the palm, the thumb, which is to the right. It's rusted and overgrown in foliage. And so I must be standing on the index finger. I can see the middle, the ring, the pinky on the other side. Each are looking very similar to the another. And oh fuck, the pterodactyl is angry and party leader Ricky is dead. We turn into shafts of light. <laughs> Party leader Ricky, that was your first mistake. He's buff. He's got like 7,000, 8,000 health now. I know, that's a... I'm channeling an older Nate from an earlier episode. Mm. Or I should say a younger Nate from an earlier episode. Another NPC gives me another key through questing to access the Aether exhaust system, a de facto arena, which is off to the northeast. We fight the elite evil Bathin, but you can leash its ads and it doesn't notice you're killing them first. Then you fight the elite and then you leash him out of the other ads that come and, and those ads wait for him to die. But then when you kill the second wave of ads that allowed the elites to die, a third wave of ads spawn and they're not aggroing on behalf of the second wave. So leash, leashing is good, but the fight takes a lot longer than you expect because enemies keep dropping down into this little arena here. The black wreckage waypoint. First of all, I was like, what the heck is this? And it's, well, Metal Face must have crash landed on this beach and the black wreckage is Metal Face's frame all twisted up and smoking. Yeah, there's no sign of Mumcar, Tyler. No Mumcar. I want a Mumcar corpse. I want to kick it and throw it out into the sea and watch it disintegrate over thousands of years. I want to know that Mumcar is dead and he's not going to show up in a later chapter saying something stupid and being an asshole, but no, we can't confirm that. I don't know, this chapter is about to give me trauma on bodies that just disappear into nothingness without a solid death confirm, right? Mm -hmm. I like death confirms. I don't like bringing characters back endlessly, and so this is disturbing that we don't have a confirmed Mumcar corpse here. Yeah, and it's strange that the folks in the Hidden Village have nothing to say about their fresh waypoint in their zone. They also complain that they can't swim very well. So if Mumcar can't swim, he's somewhere on this island fucking around doing shit. Better not be. I hope he got devoured by flamingos and crabbles. <laughs> yeah, and also there is a... um. There's a heart-to-heart -heart here, right? So, mm -hmm. you, of all the people to think about, you know, who had the biggest impact on Mumcar, right? Two people. The conversation is Dunbin and Melia? What? First of all, I don't notice much of a Dunbin and Melia connection, but wouldn't you think it would be Dunbin and Fiora? The woman he killed and the friend he betrayed? Mumcar didn't have much of a Dory connection to Melia. He killed her dad, but he did that on a whim, and he doesn't know anything about her. So, I don't know. That's questionable to have a Dunman and Melia heart-to-heart -heart on the Mumcar robot corpse. I agree. It'd be interesting to find out what that's all about. But that'll probably be for the end game. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't find myself leveling that relationship up easily. One more thing I want to mention about the Black Wreckage is, Nate, we talked about this uh, offline here, uh, how 
We think that black wreckage could have been metal wreckage and that maybe it should have been metal wreckage because, well, we've discussed that Metal Face was originally in Japanese blackface. And so maybe this, the phrase black wreckage is mixing the two translations where sure black face isn't acceptable, but black wreckage is. And the, and the localizers didn't ask themselves why they would call this waypoint black wreckage featuring Metal Face's corpse. It's one of those things that if we really hadn't had that discussion, I might not have immediately made the link except yeah i might have made the link i don't know it's it's one of those things where i wouldn't have questioned it if we hadn't done our little deep dive there Mm -hmm. but alternatively to the deep dive that whole other uh elite quest you explained with the waves of enemies and things like that for some reason i don't have that one either so listeners you can take that as proof as i don't research this game or look into guides or strategies or do anything other than play it like it was a rpg in 1994 and you had to go over to the rich kid's house to turn on the internet aol dial up and hope that their parents didn't need the phone or you could call a helpline i think nintendo power had like an honest to god helpline wouldn't that be awesome to be like imagine it's 1996 and you're sitting at the phone at nintendo of america and you're answering the phone for like eight and ten year olds asking questions about super mario world and and mega man x and how do i beat this boss in final fantasy 3 and all that nonsense there's a netflix documentary where they have a short segment on the nintendo helpline oh my god before we get any further, Nate doesn't mention what this series is, and so I'm going to tell you now that this is High Score, a docu-series that you can watch on Netflix. These people had no experience or training or how to play the game, and so they would just have to fucking wing it, you know? and Or they would go home and play games for like 10 hours at a time just so that they would have something to tell people and it's amazing that they actually had like positive reviews and like community goodwill for having that feature because if you called in and the person just had nothing to tell you you'd be kind of pissed right but i guess that was in an era of the 80s and 90s before we were inundated with call centers of overworked uh employees dealing with too many problems and little experience and they're underpaid and all of the shenanigans that's just commonplace now we have so many outsourced and underpaid call center helplines for basically everything now you can't just talk to the person you need to talk to anymore it was a pretty novel feature back in the day and they did a great job for what they had as their resources call me now for your free cheat code oh man game genie game genie used to exist too game genie used to be a thing now we don't have game genies no more there would be just games you straight up could not beat under any circumstances game genie was your only hope of ever seeing the game in its totality battletoads yes even the original ninja turtles arcade game on nes getting I think the furthest I'd ever get is like that New York snow level. And I would just be at my complete limit. Like lives were gone. Continues were, <clears throat> continues were gone. I was on my last rope at that point. He needs a pizza, a pizza electric unit. Yes, I need electric pizza. When we pick up the Paizo, the pizza electric unit, no cutscene. You just pick it up and return it. I kind of wondered if this would have been a, like, while we're out here, something happens, we see something. No. Pick up the red orb, turn around. It's in this segment of exploring this area, too, where I'm having another issue with this game. We talked about how things were really easy because we were always doing side quests and, like, keeping ahead of the curve, right? And now things are kind of catching up with me for reasons i don't know. Maybe they're not giving me enough side quests or I'm missing too many of them as you're 
elaborating for me, apparently, but I didn't have Charlotte in my party, and I'm keenly aware of how bad all the other healing options are for doing any content that is even slightly challenging. The side quests are kind of a pain, and I am often have people just sitting around at 30% health left, and no one's healing them. I have two people in my party with heals, uh, NPCs supporting me, and just nobody's health is going up. So it's like Melia and Riki both have heals, but Sharla would not allow that for a fucking second. If somebody drops in health, Sharla is bombing them with heals and getting that health bar out up there. So I'm finding that more often than not, she's in my party one way or the other. I guess I've been leaning on Melia a lot because nobody has very good reputation with Melia, and so I always have her in the party. Can she keep you up? Is she healing your people to a satisfactory degree? I put two heals on her, and then I have another party member that has one. Maybe Shulk, maybe Ricky has one. Yeah. So she has two heals. Um, one is a one is an aura that is a heal over time, and then one is uh, a more direct heal. There's also another problem I realized that mm -hmm. this just made me think of is... There were old quests where, or maybe not quests, but like elites you'd kill and situations you'd be in. Maybe it would be tied to a quest of some kind, but you would get a book that would let you level the character's ability beyond the first stage, right? Mm -hmm. So I had this impression that that was how you got those books, but I'm now finding that shops just have them in there for purchase. So now I need to go back to every shop and buy all the books to level abilities. Oh my god, yes you do. Yeah, and I haven't been pumping points into these abilities until very recently. And I'm just realizing I'm broke. Like, I don't have the money to buy gear anymore. Which is kind of good, because... I like that when gear drops off of enemies, I'm now checking it out to see if it's any good. Whereas this is like middle part of the game, nothing ever compared with what you would buy in the shops. And I would always have like way more money than anything I would ever spend at the shops. So that's all kind of like catching up with me now and just slapping me in the face. Maybe the game is just poorly tuned in the first half and maybe a little aggressively tuned in the later half which i'm okay with because it's forcing me to be more tactical and thoughtful about the game whereas i wasn't really engaging this stuff in the first half fights are tougher the environments are more challenging yeah that, that makes a lot of sense yeah go ahead and go look for those books i i think you might need them i don't have everything I need. Yeah, that's I thought exclusively where they were going to show up. So I didn't even bother like looking in every tab of every merchant, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I realized it's like holy shit, some of these are literally the the last one on the list. <laughs> like I don't know if it's a substitute of saying like you could do the quest or you can just spend a lot of money on it here, but there were some characters it's like I'm still on stage 1 with them and I've never seen their other book until I went back to like the Sword Valley merchant and found out that he had some of them. I was like, oh shit, I didn't see these at all. I forgot about that merchant. I should go back to him. I don't think we realized it at the time, but we're not allowed to get back to Sword Valley or Galahad Fortress, according to the storyline. This would be one of those examples where we are locked out of a zone, and we presume that the reason is because it is under siege by Bionis forces, and that we are compelled to continue the journey towards Mechanis and not turn around or go back. Period. Hard stop. Yeah, listeners, um, check your merchants. Check your merchants. This is a blind playthrough. Shut up, everybody. Shut up. There's probably some, like, person that's like, this game is 12 years old. What? The, why the fuck am I listening to this? These people have no clue what's going on. And it's like, you know what? In 12 years, we'll come back. We'll do the deep dive, like, religious symbolism, Hebrew mysticism analysis version. We will get 
we'll look at a guide and we'll get every single inch of this game scraped out for you. But right now we are Dumbos. So yeah, we have the piezo electric unit. Um, we go back to town and Butthead says she can fix Fiora while we rest. And that Mikol also wants to have another chat. In that chat with Mikol, we agree to stop Agil. We don't say we're going to kill him like he asked. Shulk says he's going to stop him. So very careful wording there on Shulk's part. But um, first, we have to warn the Homs about the Mekondu weapon. The secret ooze spears. Yeah, it's very important that we need to take this side quest to go back to Alchemoth, warn everybody, tell them all the problems, except that wonderful pacing. Forward narrative plotting is good because they have Dixon come strutting in to solve this problem. We have to go back and warn them before it's too late. Well, you could always ask me to do it. He is going to be the one that warns all the Homs about the goo, and we can move forward and do the new cool shit, right? Mm -hmm. We ask him, how come you didn't tell us about this place before? And Dixon defends hiding knowledge of this hidden Machina village by saying, I hid it because I need to protect this village. These folks are outcasts. They are not part of the geopolitics of these two titans here. He also says that this is the place where he sources the technology that he brings to Colony 9. Dixon, interestingly enough, when he pronounces Agil's name, he calls him Eagle. So I, in this chapter alone, I think we've gotten three different pronunciations of Agil. I'm going to call him Agil now, but uh, one character pronounced his name Ag-il, Another pronounced his name Egg Eel, like uh, the fish. And now we have Dixon calling him Eagle. Eagle or whatever his name is. I don't know, maybe it's all the accents kind of mixing and pronouncing characters differently, but I would think that the vocal director would step in and be like, hey, can you do that line again? It's supposed to be pronounced this way. No, that guy is not... Not doing that this time. He's going to let everybody's accents run wild with however they feel those four letters should be pronounced on their script. Dixon also gives us our call to action yet again. He's one of the prime suppliers of the call to action in this game. So he, he, he tells us don't go back and warn people. He'll do it. We got to get up that, get up that McConaughey's leg. Go kill that guy. Do our thing. Any sort of obstacle or obstruction that's redundant any sort of obstacle that would keep us from doing what he wants us to do he's gonna smooth out of the way and get us back on our quest and i still believe that that quest is release the monado and destroy mechanis i think the master plan is to reawaken both titans to finish the battle once and for all yes i think that that goes along with what i'm saying is like mm. you know to to free the monado and do all the shit we need to do at some point there's that like ether awakening of bionis it can wake up and move again previously i thought dixa dixa <laughs> dixon was zanza and um, we had some revelations that maybe he's not Zanza, but he's Zanza-esque or Zanza-adjacent in that he's incredibly old. So uh, to the point where the High Antia have known him for 
thousands of years. So I'm still in that zone of uh, Dixon's a manipulator. He also says, hesitate in front of Egil and you're a goner. And I think to myself, you know, that might be true. Never mind that we've defeated him once already. And he always squanders every advantageous position he finds himself in. I see him and his forces fleeing, running away from my little puny Hombody and tiny red sword all the time. All the time. I'm not really afraid of Egil. That's how it usually goes for the face mech on is that they're always making some excuse to uh, run away and fight later. So we had that with Metal Face initially. We had that with Mysterious Face slash Zord. He captured Juju and said, hey, come to Colony 6, blah, blah, blah. And there's a lot of, like, you could almost say make a case that they're manipulating to come and do something with the Monado because of how much they string you along. Mm-hmm. Earlier, we agreed that we're going to help uh, Mikal. We're going to go to the Makanis capital. And he says that when we get there, we should seek his other child, Venea. Venea. She will help us. She is sympathetic to the position of Egil has gone too far and that he needs to be stopped. Now, earlier in this recording, you asked, who was the person that put Lady Maneth in Fiora's body? I think it was Venea, if I'm remembering correctly. So now we know who that is. Mikol's daughter. She was, uh, we know that she's not a fan of Egil's purposes and so she was kind of making a power play here to usurp him with a being that she believes capable of enacting positive change in the form of lady mayneth's soul right to give a quick point this is a very xeno gears development in that within what we once perceived to be a singular power structure there are now two three four who knows different parties buying for their own ends and purposes within the same power structure. So within Makanis, you have Egil, who is the leader, but you have Lady Maneth, who is its founder. You have Mikol, the previous head of the Machina people, but now ousted by his son. And you have his daughter still in the mix of leadership, but trying to secretly usurp that power with the power of another. It's it's all just this twisting structure of opposing forces within the same power structure, not even counting the power structures within Bionis at all, of all the high Antia, Homs groups, etc. This is just within Mechanis. There are these dueling forces, and it's pretty fascinating. And if in the past I've ever used the word mess to describe this, it is definitely not that. It's carefully plotted out, and it makes a lot of sense. So using the word like, oh, this is a mess of different forces would be incorrect. It's very clear once you get the further elaboration on who's doing what and for what reasons. And I personally love that about this game. I love that about these games. And that's what keeps me coming back. Coming back to Xeno in all of its game forms. Yes. The the fact that this game is succeeding in delivering at least a portion of the things I loved about Xeno Gears is really enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's nice to get to some of the revelations that we've been hinting at uh, all along here. It's really nice. Yeah, and it's something, I don't know, maybe you feel the same way, but in seeking 
out experiences of classic Final Fantasy in modern Final Fantasy, you're often left disappointed in some cases, and I'm pleasantly surprised that this doesn't disappoint in delivering what I've loved about the Xeno series at large for the most part. Renata has input the piezoelectric unit into the aura, and she says, you're gonna probably gonna have to come back if you have another system failure. And she also supposes that Fjord can get her proper body back, but I distinctly recall in the previous chapter, she said she can never get her body back. Post-production Tyler, play those two quotes back to back and see if they are in conflict with one another. The first one's like, it's impossible, and the second one is like, well, it's impossible, but I'm gonna figure it out. She will be stuck with this body. I cannot restore her flesh and blood, Hom's body. Theoretically, it might be possible to use your genetic information to regenerate your missing organs. By the way, both of these quotes are from the same chapter. Following that, fade to black, and now we're in for another scene, and we see a Machina face. It's Agil. It's Agil face. Agil face. Like his actual face, not golden black steel armor with yellow accents, a helmet with upturned wing-like edges to his helmet, and effeminate facial features. He closes his eyes, and a vortex of golden energy and spheres with recognizable characters as faces appear and are we cycling through his memory what is this a jrpg version of inside out we're a total fraud do you think they could see through us of course not we're wearing eyeshadow we flash back to nemesis faces betrayal uh, the scene has a golden sepia tone tinge to it he asks himself why did she betray me and that light no it is not possible. It must have been the remnants of memories from her former life that made me lose control. Memories, and then a Moomkar golden ball memory appears. Memories limited Metal Face's potential as well. In order to be successful, we must erase Face Mechon Pilots' memories completely. We are going hard into just wiping their brains and making them slavish super soldiers on behalf of... Here. Yeah, and this is kind of a little bit of a contradiction in and of itself again, because in a previous chapter he said the faces aren't all that useful to him now because they're not immune to the Monado. Mm. Do they provide a tactical advantage? Some of these boss fights are easier than random Mechon elites that I've encountered in side questing, so I don't know. I he He's specifically on this trend of now torturing former Homs to remove their memories and make them better soldiers for him, but by his own admission, he said he doesn't have much use for them anymore, so is he just kind of working through his backstock? Does he have a warehouse full of things he can't move, like Walmart these days, that it's just He's going to slash prices, slash memories, get them out in the field, watch them get their ass kicked, and move on to the next iteration. I think you're precisely right, because he does dust off a new based mechon here. Um, a Sharla memory ball appears, and Egil says that another face mechon has strong memories of her. We know where this one's going. We do. We've been waiting for this since chapter th three, I think. He turns to the side and says, bring me phase 20814. We haven't heard any face mechon with a serial number before, but this one is 20814. A mechon in a, turb a, mechon in a tube of turquoise fluid appears out of nowhere. Eggle raises his hands and a new face mechon seizes in place. And he says, I assume your memories cause you much suffering. The final shot of the scene is a picture of Sharla 
from the chest up against a dead black screen, which also fades to black. She fades to black, and then the screen blinks off like as if it were a TV screen. I think this is using imagery to show memory being wiped. A memory of Sharla being wiped from this space mech on pilot. There's a lot of threads here that are coming together for us, Tyler, because in a way, way early episode, do I want to say episode? I'm saying episodes. Um, chapters. I don't remember what chapter it is or what episode it is, but early in our career here on the podcast, we had an episode with Gadult being seemingly killed in the ether mines below Colony 6, yet we never saw a body. Yeah. Yeah. You, yep. And so you know where I'm going with this, but it also leads into a point I made minutes ago of we never saw a body of Mumkar. Always show the body or I'm going to be left wondering. Show me the body. Show me the body. Yeah, exactly. And that it's it's one thing within American media or like soap operas or whatever, you know, western entertainment, but especially in anime. You need to see every cell of that <laughs> being be disintegrated into nothingness. Even if you chop off their legs, put a knife through their heart, cut out their eyeballs and set them on fire. That is not enough. They will come back. You know, there will be like uh, nano machines that reconstitute their structural integrity down to the cellular level. You need to obliterate them every single particle one at a time in front of our eyes or that character is coming back. We used to get that in final bosses in old school Final Fantasies. Kefka, X-Death, um, Zeromus, Sephiroth too. They would, at the end of the final phase of the final battle, they would disintegrate one pixel at a time or, or row of pixels at a time. <laughs> Somebody's getting their mind wiped. Someone's getting their mind wiped. We suspect that this face mechon is Gadalt. Yes. Okay. Yes. Gadalt. Gadalt. I, I don't even know how to say it. Gadalt. Lenata offers us a key to a door in Makanis's ankle. I don't know. It's called the bulkhead key. And hey, we can play again after six scenes. Um, unless there's anything more you want to do in the hidden Machina village, you walk atop a long, long pipe that hangs off the side of the index finger, across the bulkhead gate, which has a waypoint as well, and then we pause to break. The team kind of talks about the two titans. They can see both of them from here, from, from down here, from the fallen hand. They philosophize about fear. Fear is what drives Eggle, and Fiora's eyes flash red. Yeah, I, this big wire, I kind of like picture it as being a vein or something from the sense of scale we have, like these fingers being so massive. Everything in this game just living up to the conceit that it proposed at the very beginning that people could live on the body of something this giant wire like it could be something as minuscule as a blood vein to us you know mm -hmm. yeah that's a good idea maybe it is while we're on this wire um i think that this is one of the most interesting looks at mechanis the game has given us yet i agree before it's always kind of towering over you or looming over you from a previous location that we would see it with these red eyes and this blade shoved in your direction it, it looked menacing and we talked about that in previous chapters. It was this looming antagonistic force over us, like a devil in the sky. And 
now when we're using the camera to gaze at the figure from our own lower perspective, you can look up at the Makanis blade where it's impacted by Honest, where it's uh, coming from on Makanis, and you're kind of removed from that sense of we belong to this group. This other group is the the opposite of us. You're now separated from that connection to Bionis for one of the first times we have ever gazed upon this. We're looking at them both, and we are not a part of this exchange anymore. So I think that's key to that transition we're experiencing with Shulk is he's losing his connection to the Bionis from all the like kind of creepy-ass shit he's learned about uh, Zenza, Monado, whatever, and some of the atrocities inflicted upon the Machina people and seeing that, hey, they're, they're kind of just like us. The, the framing of this shot is giving us that same feeling through, uh, honestly, art, you know? A lot of people, when they look at games and they just see environments and they see, you know, yeah, an artist had to make that, but... It's up to you when you're exploring games to just stop and take in moments of like, I'm looking at a work of art here. And what is this work of art trying to say? Um, probably if you play Call of Duty, you're not going to have those kinds of experiences. But I definitely just had a moment here with that. I'm glad you mentioned the isolating feeling you get kind of buoyed between these two titans because... Well, we know this place is the Fallen Hand, but if you look at the music track listing for the music in this place, it's called the Fallen Land, not the Fallen Arm. I couldn't tell you where the localization got it kind of switched around here, but with a with a name like the Fallen Land, it feels a little more like an isolated system, like an Ungoro crater, like a an environment that does not have to contend with the geopolitics that these two Titan landmasses are fussing with at present. And, and you can feel it here in that moment. And we know that generally water gives life, right? But with this fallen arm, there aren't, as far as we can tell, fallen pieces of Bionis down here. But what we do have is flora and fauna in the fact that monsters are you know organic creatures right so mm -hmm. you know you could say that maybe in the battle some fragments of bionis fell down there too and that's where all of this comes from but there's another you know we we know that we have xenoblade chronicles 2 and 3 so there's that element to it but if you're playing this game in 2010 you could kind of postulate that this world is create capable of creating life on its own too because the arm fell to the world below and now it has vegetation and wildlife on it so that's pretty interesting to me too so when you say fallen land there's kind of a little bit of a bigger implication there of this world we we see the beings as the world for us everything is in relation to these two beings but there is a world here too and kind of lastly as we gaze up on these figures from our place on the fallen arm i always have just loved the scale of this game We've, i've talked about this a lot in previous chapters and i'm going to talk about it here too because this game has such a compelling scale to them that i don't know that I can say even modern games that have executed it to this level. So 
Like Final Fantasy 15 was one where they had these giant summons, Titan and Rama, and everyone was just losing their minds when they showed up. Like these are the biggest summons we've ever had, and it's just incredible when they first show up. And the fight with Titan is insane. And I have to wonder if like people who played Xenoblade Chronicles were just like, eh, what? Yeah, it's not that big a deal. Like, we've seen the real shit, you know? The real Titans. Just like that mighty blow by Honest dealt to Mechanus, we're slicing this episode and a half right here, right where it counts, right at the elbow. Join us next time where we're going to get into the bulk of the playable sections of the chapter when we explore the Mechanus field, a very different zone than what we're used to here. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>